0: for listening to the Cornerstone Tulsa podcast. Our mission is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit our website at cornerstonetulsa.org or find us on social media. And with that, let's hop into this week's teaching. Luke chapter 3. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I will baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing, his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrach because of his marriage to to Herodias, his brother's wife, all the other evil things he had done, Herod added to this to to them all. He locked John up in prison. When all the people were, were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love, with you I am well pleased. This is the word of God for the people of God.
1: Thanks be to God. You can be seated. Thanks, Nixon. <clears throat> so I actually preached on the John the Baptist portion of this text uh, a couple of weeks ago in the season of Advent. John is like the central figure of the season of Advent. Uh, but then as we go through the church calendar, we're catching up with the life of Jesus. And so uh, today, the first Sunday of the season of Epiphany, we're, we're, we see Jesus' baptism, Uh, Many of you, millions of people on planet Earth, have read Stephen Covey's uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And one of the habits is to begin with the end in mind. And as Jesus here is beginning his ministry, uh, we see that that Jesus began as he would continue and as he would complete his ministry. Uh, John, as you know, was going throughout the Jordan River Valley. He's preaching this message of repentance and urging baptism that sins might be forgiven. And Jesus himself goes forward for baptism, an act of humility. In Matthew's telling of the story, Jesus shows up at the river and he, he submits himself to be baptized by John, and, and 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 John protests. He's like, Look, look, I shouldn't be baptizing you. You should be baptizing me. And Jesus said, Let it happen. Because we need to do this in order to fulfill all righteousness. Uh, Michael Green, in his book on baptism, which is very cleverly entitled Baptism, (laughs) which I'm going to quote from a lot today, uh, says this. He says, What is meant by the baptism of Jesus? The answer stares us in the face. If Jesus was really going to act as proxy, as the stand-in for sinful men and women... He must identify fully with them. And here he's doing just that. It's a dummy run or a test run for Calvary. Here is Jesus who has done no sin, identifying himself with sinful men and women in the waters of baptism as a picture of what he had come to do and what would be worked out in blood and tears on that terrible cross a few years later. Jesus, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us on the cross. And here he's being sin for us in the waters of baptism, identifying with each of us. The story of the Gospels begins with the story of Jesus' baptism. And as it was for Jesus, so it is for us. Baptism is central to the life of the believer. Baptism is also central to the identity of, of the church. Uh, Baptizing and being baptized was among the last things that Jesus emphasized to his believers in Matthew's gospel as he ascended on the day of ascension. It's in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, uh, 18 through 20. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Behold, I'm with you always to the very end of the age. He's like, hey, one last thing. I'm in charge of everything, and as a result of that, I'm telling you, go make disciples, baptize them in the name of the triune God, and teach them to obey the stuff I commanded you, and I'll be with you in the middle of that work. Baptism is central, but I think that if we were to take a little poll, even in this room, or, or perhaps better, in the city of Tulsa, we went up to random people and said, what is the purpose of baptism? Or what is the meaning of baptism? We would get very different answers. Even in this room, I think we'd have different answers based on the varying early experiences many of us had with the Christian church. And I think there are two reasons for differences of understanding about baptism. Now, either a lot of you are about to laugh or none of you are about to laugh, and I'm going to know for sure whether my humor is like your humor. But two things here. One reason I think that we have differences of understanding about the purpose of baptism is, is that there can be quite confusing communication. I found this on Instagram a couple weeks ago and laughed really hard on numerous occasions. Let's see if you do as well. Confusing communication. I don't know quite what they're going for there. I think I get the idea. Confusing communication about about baptism. We've all got the same Bible. The same 2,000 years of church history have preceded all of us, and yet we often have different understandings of what baptism is. Okay, if you didn't think that was funny, you're not going to think the next one was funny either. (laughs) There can be... The second thing I want to say about why baptism can be confusing is that there are simultaneously true and varying points of emphasis. So... Two things are true right here. You might need to turn your head a little bit. <laughs> well, I liked it. Cat and bird. Numerous things are true all at once, simultaneously true. Now, if we're going to talk about baptism, I would say if we were to caricaturize some of the different postures of what it is, what its purpose is, what its meaning is, there would probably be three different caricatures. One, we could, we could uh, label with the title Catholic. The Catholic way of understanding what baptism is would say that baptism is all about joining the body of Christ. Uh, a Catholic view might say just as uh, under the old covenant, you, you entered in via circumcision, people joined the new covenant by baptism. It is not at all about what you are doing in the act of baptism, but, but what has been done for you in the person of Jesus Christ. Therefore, the Catholic Church would quite readily baptize babies, because they don't need, and the same in the Anglican Church as well, because they would have the mindset, like, this is something that is done for you. Now, all of us, I would say there are probably people in this room who've grown up with a Roman Catholic background or a background where you baptize babies. Some of you have struggled with this over the years, and you might find uh, another point of emphasis that you identify with more readily. Uh, a second caricature might be what we could just call Protestant. Uh, by Protestant, I mean, I think it's, it's, it's typified in the Baptist response, which, by the way, if you're, ba- if you're non-denominational in Tulsa, it probably means you're Baptist. <laughs> And if not Baptist, not like charismatic, okay? It's one of those two. Whereas the Catholic view of baptism says it's all about joining the church. It's not about what you do, but what's been done for you. The the Protestant view of baptism, uh, and again, this is a caricature, would be to say that baptism is a public declaration of my personal decision to follow Jesus. I think probably two-thirds of the people in this room, if not more, if I were to ask you to define baptism or say the purpose of baptism or who should get baptized, would say something like that. Baptism is a public declaration of a personal decision to follow Jesus. We could probably tack on a third caricature of way at at coming at the topic of baptism, and that would be uh, typified by the Pentecostal response. I have a lot of affection and and loyalty to the, the Pentecostal movement. It's deep in my family roots. And the, the Pentecostal emphasis on baptism would say, look, water baptism is fine, but the only baptism that really counts is baptism in the Holy Spirit, or baptism in the Holy Ghost, more likely. Uh, that's the one that's really, really important. Now, looking at each of these, we've got the Catholic, the Protestant, the Pentecostal way at coming at baptism. We see that each of them have some kind of grounding in Scripture. Uh, the Catholic view has a strong biblical foundation. We uh, go to places like Galatians chapter 3. Paul said, all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus have clothed yourselves with Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Paul, in numerous places in the New Testament, is making an argument that those who have been baptized have been grafted into the family of Israel, God's covenant people. Who are the ones who have been brought into the new Israel, Abraham's seed? It's those who have been baptized. Those are the ones who are Abraham's seed, who are heirs according to the promise. The baptized ones are those who are part of God's covenant people. Now, uh, this view has a lot of strength. Uh, This this view really flexes its muscles on a corporate or communal understanding of baptism. Uh, To be baptized is to be peopled, is to be given a new family, is to be brought into something bigger than oneself. It's strong on the corporate or communal side of understanding baptism, but it's rather weak on the individual side, on the need for personal response to the gospel. Some of you who are raised in Roman Catholic churches have reported to me the experience of, yeah, I was christened or baptized as a baby. It didn't mean anything to me. But when I was 25 years old, and I met Jesus, and that's when everything changed. There's something right about the Catholic emphasis on the corporate or the communal aspect present in baptism, but there's also something right in the the Protestant instinct that we need to have a personal response to the gospel. The Catholic view is strong on baptism being an objective marker of salvation. It's like, am I saved? Well, I was baptized. It's rather weak on the subjective experience of knowing Christ. Michael Green again said, If you think of baptism as the mark of being a Christian, remember this is kind of the Catholic mentality, if you think of baptism as being the mark of being a Christian, irrespective of personal belief or response, it can degenerate quite easily into something very akin to magic. It's like, let's just sprinkle some water on you, say the magic words, bada bing, bada boom, you're a Christian, you're in. If you don't have an emphasis on personal response, it can lead to something that feels a lot like magic. So, the Catholic view brings some strength to the table, but it's incomplete. Uh, The Protestant view of baptism, that it's a public declaration of a personal decision, clearly has a biblical foundation. It's the day of Pentecost. The believers have just been filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter goes out into the square, and he preaches the gospel, and the people are cut to the heart, and they say, what do we do? Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And for believers, especially Gentile believers who come to faith in Christ in the book of Acts, uh, this is the normative flow of events. Uh, there's, there's a proclamation of gospel, there's a repentance, there's belief, uh, there's baptism, there's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, the, the Philippian jailer goes through this. Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch goes through this. They hear the message, they repent, they get baptized. It's that simple. Now, this view of baptism is obviously really strong on the individual response and the need for personal repentance. And the New Testament is full of conversion stories like this. Some of us, were we to share our story, would tell a story like this. I heard the gospel. I was cut to the heart. I repented. I was baptized. I became a Christian. It's strong on the individual response. It's weak, however, on baptism being something that brings you into the one body of Christ. It's it's weak on thinking that it's something that unites you with all of God's people. If you see the body of Christ as only being those who have explicitly placed their faith in Christ, you have to ask, well, what about little kids? Jesus said the kingdom of God belongs to such as these, but would we add the asterisk if they've been baptized? What about that? What about people who are raised in families of believers but for whatever reason don't have the cognitive ability to respond to the proclamation of the gospel? Do they not have a place of belonging in God's family? Are they not meant to be part of the church? Will Jesus have nothing to do with them? Furthermore, if, if baptism is just about one's individual response and personal decision and not becoming part of the one body of Christ, then history has shown us that it is much easier to break off and form your own church with people who agree with you. How many of you have been through a church split and you know the pain of that? while the protestant movement writ large gets it right that baptism must include a personal response have we not seen that the, the lack of emphasis on unity has, has left a church very divided some of you went to 14th you know baptist church because there were 13 church splits that happened before that if it's all about the individual with no emphasis on the whole the one body of christ it can lead to division even so the, the Protestant view brings something to the table. Green said, if the church is not the body of believers, well, then what good, earthly good is it? If baptism isn't the mark of repentance and faith, then why retain it? Of course, individual response is central to an understanding of baptism. And then finally, we have this, this Pentecostal emphasis on baptism and the Holy Spirit, which brings something very important to the table. My grandfather, Frank Smith, wrote a book on speaking in tongues and baptism in the Holy Spirit. My great-great-grandfather, Solon Orlonzo Welch, was an itinerant Pentecostal evangelist living in Perry County, Arkansas, and in 1903 came to the Tulsa area and preached a revival. And then he was broke and had to hit, get, like, borrow money to take a train back to Perry County, Arkansas. Crazy stories from his memoirs I'll tell another time. But this is deep in my bones, I was raised in the Assemblies of God. I went to Oral Roberts University. I've got a lot of affection for the charismatic Pentecostal movement and what it's brought to my life and to the church. Green said, In this view, the emphasis on baptism in the Holy Spirit, the church is not seen as the historical community, which can be apostate, nor as the body of those who have expressed repentance and faith, which can be mere intellectual assent. No, in the Pentecostal view, receiving the Holy Spirit is the mark of the church. Baptism in the Holy Spirit is the only baptism worth having, and for those of you who don't understand what I'm talking about when I say the baptism in the Holy Spirit, there would be this, this sense that, of course, you're baptized in water, but there's this second almost kind of enlightenment or encounter with the person of the Holy Spirit that is separate from, uh, from water baptism. The idea that one needs the the life of the Holy Spirit as a part of the life of the believer comes clearly from Scripture, from experience, but also places like Romans chapter 8. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they don't belong to Christ. The Spirit should be central to the life of the believer and the church. And I want us as a church to be open to any gift the Spirit wants to offer. We should be completely open. Uh, Green, again, says the church at large needs to be very grateful for the Pentecostal stress on spiritual life, life in the spirit, as the distinguishing mark of the Christian. They are not satisfied with any right, any profession, if there's no manifestly recognizable inner reality. And that is great. However, it has a real weakness, just as each of the other strands does if taken in isolation. Cut off from historical community... Those who, those who maintain that baptism in the Holy Spirit is the thing that makes the church that baptism is all about. People who hold that view can be very divisive. Cut off from any emphasis on content, it can easily and frequently does go off the rails in doctrine and morals. Okay, so we got these three views. We've got the Catholic view, the Protestant view, we got the Pentecostal view. Which one is Right? Well, all of them bring something important to the table. All three of them are vital. It's three cords that, braided together, make one rope. It's three streams that, flowing together, make one river. The Catholics are right. Baptism is a seal of Christ's death and resurrection that is given to us independent of our action. It's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It makes us part of his family, and we add nothing to it. But the Protestants are also right. We have to personally respond to the gospel with repentance and faith, or his offer does little for us. And the Pentecostals are also right that you can be baptized, you can know the Nicene Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the Athanasian Creed. You can talk systematic theology all day and night and still be shut off to the Holy Spirit. And without the Spirit, baptism is, is far, far, far less than what God wants and intends for us. So they're all right. There's a lot going on when we talk about baptism. It's a marker of being included in God's family. It's a sign of repentance and faith. It immerses us in the life of the Holy Spirit. But why this act? Why, why water? Why give us this, this physical token If we go back to the old testament we see that god has always worked like this that that knowing that he was an invisible god gave his people visible signs that helped them to believe we could talk about numerous examples but let's just go to the story of abraham you remember the book of genesis re-enter that you know some of you january 1st read genesis 1 you've already given up trying to read all the way through the bible this year But Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything. It's good, 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 very good. Genesis 2, God walks with Adam and Eve in the garden in the cool of the day. Things are great. Adam and Eve are ruling over creation as God rules over them. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve attempt to usurp God's authority by defining right and wrong for themselves, and things go poorly after that. They're they're kicked out of the garden. Cain kills Abel. the, the, The whole crisis culminates in Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel when humanity comes together for the purpose of defying God. And he scatters them as they speak all these different language, languages. Then we get to Genesis chapter 12, where God calls a man named Abram. What does God, what does Abram know of God before this? We don't know, but, but Abram hears the call of God, and God sees in, in Abram a person that he can trust, a person that he, to whom he's going to entrust this holy purpose. Through Abram's family, he's going to bless all of the families of the world. God takes the initiative in reaching out to Abram because he loves him, and Abram responds with faith and trust, and the scriptures teach us, and God reckoned this faith and trust to him as righteousness. God made a covenant with Abraham to bless the world. We see it in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, and as a sign, an objective marker that Abram and his people we're going to be different, that they had been included in God's covenant family. He gave them a physical sign to all the males of Israel, and it was circumcision. In their most vulnerable of moments in life, when they were the most alone, the men would see, We are marked by God as part of His family. When God was invisible, He gave them something visible tangible to remember we are made part of his family because of the initiative that he took toward us Uh, some of you who may have been at oru in the early 80s will know the name bob stamps stamps was my one of my professors at asbury seminary and he said really wisely that faith needs something to do and something to touch I was, I, was, I was thinking in the last service about Naaman and, and the Book of Kings. He was this Syrian r- uh, ruler who comes to the prophet to be healed. And the prophet tells him, go dip in the river seven times, then you'll be healed. It's like, the Jordan River's gross. Do it anyway. Faith needs something to do and something to touch. I think about the story of the woman with the issue of blood. She'd been hemorrhaging for 12 years. She sees Jesus coming in the crowd and she says, if I just touch the hem of his garment... She reaches out, she touches the hem of his garment, and Jesus realizes power has gone out from him, and she's miraculously healed. Faith needs something to do and something to touch, and God, the invisible God, gave his people something to do, gave them something to touch, an objective marker to remind them they were a part of his covenant family. God, we could talk about Noah and the rainbow. We could talk about Moses and, and the feasts, especially Passover, as, as tangible signs. But we remember how God deals with Abram gives us a snapshot of how God has always dealt with humanity. God takes the initiative and reaches out in love. God's grace and his kindness is meant to be reciprocated with faith and love. And a tangible sign is given as proof of the exchange between God's grace and our faith. And that sign is extended generously. Uh, God commands his people circumcise your children, circumcise your little boys. Do these little boys know what's going on in being circumcised? Well, they know it hurts. (laughs) But do they know the the significance of it? No, of course not. But God tells them to extend this sign generously. What we see in in the story of the people of Israel, if you're reading the daily office readings with our church and you were in Jeremiah this week, uh, you you would have seen that uh, all of Abraham's family was circumcised, certainly, but the sign didn't work automatically. Esau is circumcised. Um, um, Ishmael is circumcised, but the, but the signs didn't work. Their, their hearts weren't right. The outer mark didn't align with the inner faith. Michael Green again says all of this conversation about circumcision, and God's grace, our response, the sign is very instructive. If indeed we Christians are Abraham's offspring, as Galatians 3 says. It tells me that the Christian life is response in faith and obedience to the God who takes initiative. God didn't change his, his, his M.O. in the New Testament. He's still the first one to extend an offer of grace to which we're meant to respond. The Christian life is response in faith and obedience to the God who takes the initiative. And it comes in sheer grace to seek me out. It tells me that God generously gives a physical mark of belonging to seal that unseen contract between his undeserved love and our wobbly faith. Baptism is obviously the mark of initiation into the new covenant, just as circumcision was into the old. And indeed, Paul brings the two of these sacramental acts together and links them with the dying and rising of Christ in his letter to the Colossians. The church in Colossae, primarily Gentile to these people. Paul says, you were circumcised. They weren't. You were circumcised, he tells them, with a circumcision made without hands. This is a spiritual marker. By putting off the body of the flesh in the circumcision of Christ. And you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the work of God who raised him from the dead. Okay, so let's summarize this with a couple of points. Uh, Thinking about the whole story of God. First, uh, baptism is a mark of the covenant between God's grace and our response. God's grace and our response. Okay, embedded in this is we see both the Catholic and the Protestant kind of understanding of baptism. Uh, God's grace extended to us. There's nothing we can do to earn it. It's extended to us, but we must also individually respond to it. Baptism is the mark of that exchange, that covenant. The second thing we see is the mark is extended generously. It's given to all males in Israel, and in a patriarchal society, it's extended to the whole family of Israel by virtue of the men. But there's there's an addendum that we could add to the Acts 2 passage I read earlier when, when, when Peter preached on the day of Pentecost. He says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But then he goes on to say, the message is for you and your children, and all who are far off, all whom the Lord our God will call. These are primarily Jews in Jerusalem growing up, giving the sign of the Old Covenant to their children through circumcision. They think, well, is God going to be more stingy with the New Covenant? No, he's going to be just as generous. And so from the beginning, the church baptized babies. We see this in, in the second century. I mean, from the very beginning, it was exceptional when there was a shift. We could talk about the history of the Anabaptist movement at another time. But We see from the beginning, this mark was extended generously. But the thing that we also know to be true by experience is that this mark must eventually be met with faith. Someone who is baptized, the fact that they are baptized is not a guarantee that they actually have or will respond in faith. The mark must eventually be met with faith uh, or the the person who is baptized but doesn't have faith is going to miss out on the promises of God, the opportunities, just like the person who was circumcised but never believed God it was reckoned to them as righteousness. Okay, John, lots of words, blah, blah, blah. Help me understand. Give me some mental pictures. A couple of ways that we could, we could get at the purpose of baptism or, or to understand what baptism does. Make it really simple. Baptism is like, like being written a check. God writes the check and has the funds to back it, and he gives it to us, but we have to cash the check. If we never cash it, It doesn't mean that the check was invalid, that God was wrong in giving it to us, or that the funds were insufficient. It also doesn't mean that that giving checks to people who choose not to cash it is a bad thing. Some of you have like 30 years of $2 checks from your grandmother that you've never cashed. Tell her before you do. It's a generous thing to do. God gives us the check. He, He makes this offer to us with backing behind it. In baptism, as we're going to see as we close in just a minute, we are extended all of the resources of the kingdom of God, but we have to avail ourselves of them. We've got to cash the check. Similarly, we could say that baptism is like being given the deed to a property. It's given to us. It's in our name. It's ours. But we may never go and explore the property ourselves. We may never seek out its resources. There may be like mineral rights that we could exploit for our profit. But that's our fault if we never choose to do that. Or we could say the baptism is a bit like marriage vows. A couple uh, will stand in front of the minister and they'll, they'll, they'll swap vows and the minister will say then and there their husband and wife, assuming that shortly thereafter they're going sign to a, sign a document that binds them to one another. And not long after that they're going to consummate their relationship. Now, if they don't consummate their relationship, if they don't sign the marriage contract, even though the minister has said liturgically they are husband and wife, in reality they are not, and the marriage can be considered null and void. So here's my synthesis of of putting all of this together, trying to get at what is baptism. This This is me, not Michael Green. Baptism is the sign of the new covenant extended to us in Jesus. It signifies our belonging in God's family. Through our response and repentance and faith, it makes available to us all of the resources of the kingdom of God, including and especially the Holy Spirit. And you can see how these views are braided together to see the whole truth of this multifaceted and wonderful thing that is baptism. It's the sign extended to us independent of our own action. It signifies that we belong because of God's initiative, because He said that we belong. We also see this Protestant need that we have to respond to it. We've got to cash the check. We've got to explore the property. We've got to sign the marriage agreement. We have to respond. But in responding, it makes available to us all of the resources of the kingdom of God, especially the gift of the Holy Spirit. All of these things together are baptism. Like circumcision, the church from the beginning extended baptism generously, including to the children of Believers, but the church has always maintained that one, uh, that God's offer, two must still be met with our response. Which I guess what I'm saying is, it takes two to make a thing go right. You know, (laughs) it takes two to make it out of sight. You know, (laughs) if you were born after the year 2000, you don't understand. But all of this is made visible to us in the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus, him who had no sin, was lowered in the waters of baptism on behalf of sinful humanity, it was repentance. Jesus emerges from the water and the Spirit descends like a dove and a voice proclaims, You are my Son that I love. With you I'm well pleased. There's repentance. There's belonging. You're part of my family, the Father says. And there's the gift of the Spirit that comes to rest on Jesus. I want to tell you today that it's our baptism that tells us the whole story about ourselves. It's baptism who tells us who we really are. Your baptized identity is more important than your Enneagram number. Your baptized identity is more important than your Myers-Briggs or your DISC or your family of origin. Your baptism speaks a more important word about you than your search history or your criminal history or even your greatest successes. Because your baptism tells you who you really are in God's eyes, who you are in Christ. If you're in Christ Jesus, you were born again. You're washed of your sin. You're free of condemnation. You're part of God's family. You've been made into the temple of the Holy Spirit. The same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. That is who you are. And hearing the proclamation of the gospel, the people say, well, what should we do? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, who can do this? Well, you and your children. And all those people who are far off, who, like, you think they're never going to respond to God's grace. God might call them. How should we respond? If you've never been baptized, get baptized. Let's figure out how to rig a dunk tank in here. Be baptized. Trust in the Lord Jesus. Get baptized. Talk to me after service. If you want to have your children baptized. Now, maybe you're here and and you have you've you've been baptized, but you've drifted from who you are. And you, you need to remember that's who I am. The New Testament teaches that there's one Lord, there's one faith, and one baptism. The scriptures don't don't really have a path forward for rebaptism, just as there wasn't a path forward for recircumcision. You don't want to do that. Either you're baptized or you're not, it's not something you should repeat. It is something that you should remember. Martin Luther, the great reformer, who, by the way, was baptized as an infant. As an adult, his, his conscience was perpetually plagued by sin. I think, I think it was the, the importance of his work. There was just such intense opposition, and he always heard the voice of the enemy ring in his ear. And when he felt at his weakest, he would write down his name, Martin Luther. He would write, I am baptized. He just remembered, there's a truer story about who I am than what the voice in my head is saying. I am a new creation in Christ. We need to remember. Some of us have, have not just drifted, but we've just run from the family of God. We've known and tasted the love of God, but like the, the prodigal in Luke chapter 15, have run and squandered our wealth, squandered the resources of the kingdom, and, and like we've, we've just so blown it that we feel this impulse to like do it again. There have been times in the life of our church where I've walked people through uh, restoring their faith publicly or reaffirming their baptism. One guy stood in front of me and he told a story about what God has done in his life. And I asked him the questions that I would ask another person being baptized. And then I had him take a cup or a handful of water and just splash his face. Some people who've wandered really far feel such intense this psychological desire or need to get re-baptized. I even talked to our bishop, Todd Hunter, this week, and he said there may even be space to reenact a person's baptism. It might look like we're baptizing them again, but we say, just as you were already baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, so we now reenact and remember what God has already done for you. We need to live into what has already happened for us in our baptism. All of the Christian life could be described as the baptized life. That in increasing measure, assured that we are loved and approved by our Father, and comforted that we are now part of His family, and confident that we've been forgiven and cleansed of our sins, learning to walk in the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, we live in the world with our head held high, and our heart at peace, eager now to do the work that God has given us to do, to join Him and the renewal of all things. And the great initiating moment is in baptism. God takes the first initiative. We are intended to respond to that with faith, and he gives us uh, this token, this sign in baptism. Sometimes that sign is extended before we believe, and it needs to be met with our belief. Sometimes we're baptized and we're really, you know, even as adults, and we're not really there in our belief, but it's these three ingredients together. God's action, uh, our response, being welcomed into the family of God through this token, this gift of baptism. And in baptism, like Jesus, we hear the voice of our Heavenly Father speaking over us. You are my Son that I love. With you I am well pleased. And we hear the voice of our Father saying, You are my daughter that I love. With you I am well pleased. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as forgetful as we are, and as difficult it can be to believe with not see, without seeing, I thank you for the gift of baptism. I pray, Lord Jesus, uh, first for the person who's in this room who's never been baptized and who feels just this compulsion to want to say yes to you and be part of your family. I pray that you give them the grace, whether it is now or it is in the car or it's at home tonight, for them to respond in repentance and faith to the proclamation of the gospel and the offer of salvation in Jesus. And may they have the courage to be welcomed into your family through baptism. I pray for all of us who are, uh, you know, kind of like everyday believers who are just prone to forget and prone to wander. And I pray that you give us the grace today to remember our baptism. I pray for those who are baptized as children and who resent it. That even in their baptism as as children, and especially in their baptism as children, I pray that you would give them a fresh telling of their own story and a fresh memory in a way that causes them to overflow with gratitude. Wow. You took the step toward me before I was even aware of you. I pray for the person who has run away from your family, Lord Jesus, that you give them the grace to come home, to remember who they are, to remember where they belong. Give them the grace to respond in faith today, just as they did at the very beginning. And Lord Jesus, we thank you as well that as we come to the table, you've given us another sign through which you promise to be with us as we receive uh, the bread and wine. And we pray that you'd be present. Be present to Jesus, our great high priest, as you are present with your disciples in the breaking of bread. Make us aware of your presence as we receive the bread and wine. You who are more present in this room than we are, make your presence known to us. Affirm your love for us. Affirm our belonging with your people. Remind us of the the great salvation you've offered us and help us to avail ourselves completely of every resource of the kingdom, especially the Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, we honor you and we love you and we trust you. We thank you. We pray all this in your name and for your glory. We said, amen.